Welcome to the Seattle Mariners Baseball Podcast. I mean, stop, Seager. Toss on off the first. In time to get seven. Three-run homer. Robinson can off the lefty specialist, Fernando Abad. And the Mariners lead it five to four. Goodbye, baseball. Straight away, center field. Cano and Cruz go back to back. And the king, when the Mariners needed him the most, two hits over seven. Scored us innings. Now, here's your host, Gary Hill. Hey, welcome back. It's the Elementary Baseball Podcast. Thanks for being here once again. Hope you enjoyed the off day. Back to it tonight, the Mariners and A's from Oakland. This is going to be a fun series, so we'll talk about the series coming up for a few minutes. Also coming up, a conversation with Jesse Smith. This is fun, wide-ranging conversation. Member of the front office, manager of analytics for the Mariners. That comes up in a few minutes. We're going to have some fun with Mike Blowers as well. <laughs> so we'll do that. And also, I don't think I've played one of these on the podcast yet, but I'll do this from time to time. Riz Remembers, the first one that we've played here on the podcast. And with Chris Bosio in town with Detroit, Riz Remembers his no-hitter in a Mariners uniform. It's a pretty cool moment before one of the ball games. Iwakuma, Paxton, Basio, and Felix all a picture taken together on the mound, which was pretty cool on the same spot. So that comes up in a few minutes. So Mariners and A's tonight. This is going to be a really good series. A quick three-game road trip and then back home for a 10-game homestand for the Mariners. Three with Minnesota, four with Texas, and three with Tampa Bay. Mariners playing great. They've won three in a row. They've won five of their past seven. You look at the three games in a row they've won against Detroit, and really great games. I mean, each of them had something pretty spectacular. Of course, on Sunday, the come-from-behind win. Hanniger, the two-run home run in the ninth, and then the Mariners win it in the 11th. On Saturday, Paxton, the complete game, a four-run sixth inning. Friday, the big comeback with five runs in the seventh inning. Mariners in the seventh inning or later doing a ton of damage. 22 home runs actually tied with Oakland for the second most in the big leagues. As a team batting 272 in the seventh inning or later, that's second best in the big leagues. And you kind of wind the clock back the entire month, go back to April 23rd. The Mariners have the third best record in baseball. Yankees, who have played out of their minds for a lot of that span, 19-4. and four. The Nationals, 15-8. and eight. And then you have the Mariners and the Braves at 16-9. and nine. So essentially a full month. And the Mariners are among the best in baseball in the past month. Mariners 27-19 and 19 overall. Now hooking up with the A's, who are playing their best baseball this season. Oakland has won four in a row and six of their past seven they just completed a long road trip. They swept the Blue Jays in four games on the road. Pretty impressive. Uh, also on that trip, they took two or three from the Boston Red Sox. They started that trip by losing two or three in New York, but two or three from Boston taking four against Toronto. They're playing awesome. Uh, offensively, they have been solid this year. I mean, in the top five in several categories, uh, slugging percentage, runs scored, doubles, home runs, walks. I mean, the young lineup is really, really hitting its stride. They've had more struggles 
with the pitching staff and with the rotation. They've also run into injuries as well. Uh, this is a big one too. Chris Davis hurt himself uh, in the last ball game against Toronto, had to leave early, and it looks like he may have to hit the DL. We won't know until tomorrow for sure, but Davis has done a ton of damage against the Mariners over the years. He's hit more home runs than anyone against the M's the last three years, even more than Mike Trout. But he's got a groin strain, and there's a chance he's going to hit the DL, so that's a pretty big loss. Their DL is it's getting full. I mean, Triggs and Powell and and Hendricks. Cotton is out for the year, of course. Uh, Blackburn has gone for a while. Anderson just went on the DL, so it's kind of got stacked up, especially in the pitching staff. Manaya, of course, has been outstanding for Oakland. They haven't set their rotation for the next few days. We know that Trevor Cahill is going to go for Oakland tonight. You haven't got official word as of right now. Who else is going in the next two ball games? Cahill this year in five starts for the A's has pitched really well. A 2.79 ERA, 29 innings, walks 70, struck out 32 in the 29 innings of work. So he's given the A's some quality innings. Last time against the Red Sox, went five, allowed three earned runs. Time before that against Baltimore, six shutout innings, fanning 12 in the ball game on 98 pitches. So he's been really good. He's also faced Houston and Texas and Chicago. So he'll get the ball for the A's in game one of the series. Mike Leak is going for the Mariners in game one tonight. Leak last time out gave up five earned against the Rangers. His two previous, he'd really settled into some pretty good grooves. Just two runs against Toronto in seven innings. Gave up three against L.A. into the sixth, but... Last time out against Texas, five and five and a third. Still searching around for that consistency a little bit. He has faced Oakland this year. Gave up three earned in six innings of work. So that sets up game one of the series. 7.05 first pitch. Game two will come up on Wednesday, 7.05. Marco Gonzalez will go for the Mariners. And then Thursday, day baseball from Oakland. Felix will take the mound in Oakland against the A's. Mariners have played well against the A's this year, 4-2 and two so far, taking a 2 of 3. Both series in Seattle, strangely enough, so far, uh, taking 2 of 3 in April, and then the beginning of this month in May, taking 2 of 3 as well. So the M's would like to continue taking series. It's what they've done so well this year. And trying to do it against the A's again for the third time this season won't be easy. The A's playing some really good baseball, two games above 500 at home. Of course, the Mariners are playing really well, 15 and nine away from home so far this year. Eight games above 500. The A's now three games above 500. So big series. Both teams playing really well. This is going to be a fun three-game trip coming up starting tonight. So. See what happens. We'll talk to you tomorrow about it. In the meantime, let's have our conversation with Jesse Smith. So what is the draft preparation like for you right now? Yeah, so uh, the Rule 4 amateur draft just around the corner in early June. Uh, so it's really ramping up. We have a series of meetings. Uh, you know, every year we're talking about thousands of amateur players from high school through college. Uh, and we have a a vast network of scouts that actually have to go out and see all of these players. Uh, they all have their areas of coverage. Then we have the cross-checkers to get second looks and third looks and sometimes 15 looks on players. <laughs> Not an exaggeration. Uh, and uh, and then we have to 
coalesce all this information together, which you can only imagine how many discussions that requires. Uh, and one thing, and normally, and historically, this has been outside of my wheelhouse. I kind of like to say that when I started, I knew about the major leagues. By year two, I understood double A AA and triple A and so on and so forth. And now I'm on year seven. I'm finally understanding the amateur ranks of the game. Uh, but one thing that we're doing this year, which I'm really excited about, is we are implementing a data-driven model that will it will set the board, and by that I mean it will set an, uh, an order of preference uh, for our prospects. That doesn't mean it will be the final order of preference, but it means that we will use it as a discussion point uh, to hopefully spur interesting conversation and to just speed us past hopefully a lot of otherwise unnecessary vote-offs of this guy or that guy the idea is this model will take us you know to start at second base and then from there we can talk as a group and get the order that we that we really want it to be in uh so that's pretty exciting i mean that undertaking seems incredible when you consider you know the thousands of players you have to sift through in the thousands of different locations in the country that's a huge undertaking. Yeah. Uh, when we first talked about it, I was pretty intimidated. Uh, obviously, I'm not the only one working on it, but it is uh, primarily my project, and I've been working on it for nearly a year at this point. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a massive undertaking to, to bring together all that information. So we have, as mentioned, all those scouting reports. And then we have different amounts of statistics for different players. Uh, we have all the college stats. We have different divisions of college, different quality of competition. There's some track man in the amateur rakes, but not that much. You have the high school stats, which is a real wild west. Uh, very limited track man information and showcases for some of those high school players. So, at any rate, bringing it all together uh, and doing it empirically is, is very challenging. And, and what I mean by that is I'm not building something to express my opinions. I'm certainly not a scout. What I'm trying to do is allow the data to speak for itself as clearly as possible uh, so that our evaluators' opinions are being heard in an unbiased way, and then from there we can sort through. Uh, so it's really been a challenge, and uh, to me I view it as an immense opportunity to move the needle for the organization. Uh, so uh, it's a really exciting opportunity, and I just feel fortunate to be the right place at the right time to push us uh, into the next base so Mariners just played the Rangers here and every time Joey Gallo comes about I think of you as the shifts are becoming and we've talked about shifts for a number of years now but they're becoming uh, even more prevalent if you can believe it even more extravagant but what is your take now on as you watch this play out well, you know, we felt like Blowers was getting a little too comfortable <laughs> with the, the traditional shifts, so uh -huh. we had to just keep him on his toes. Uh, but, yeah, in all seriousness, the, the Gallo shift is was a little something special. That one's not in the quote-unquote playbook. Uh -huh. uh, Gallo's kind of got his own thing. You know, Houston did that four-man outfield against him, and we thought that was interesting, but it didn't really make sense to us. But... Uh, he does he does pull the ball and really anything you can do to get Joey Gallo not to try to pull the ball is a good thing although knock on wood we did see him go oppo go oppo out uh, so you know he's a force but uh, but yeah you know we looked at the data it was actually uh, the coaching staff just 
really pressed us to see if that made sense, really what Houston did. And from that, that led us to that uh, outfield trapezoid alignment, uh, the gallo shift, we'll call it for now, uh, which we just we thought it made sense. Uh, we'll see if we still think it makes sense, you know, a few months from now. But I saw actually Houston has since copied our shift on that one. Uh, from sources, quote-unquote, Seattle had the perfect alignment uh, for Joey Gallo, so I uh, feel pretty good about it. As a data guy, how much do you love D. Gordon? Yeah, he's he's such a fascinating player, so entertaining, so talented. Uh, I think that in the, in the StatCast era that we're in, it's it becomes even easier to appreciate a guy like D. Gordon, uh, Whereas maybe in the past with cruder stats, I would have I would have failed to appreciate some of his nuanced skills. But uh, the versatility, I mean, on top of everything else, the speed, the playmaking, uh, the contact, the versatility that we can move him from center where he's uh, been above average so far. There's been some uh, some misplays, but all in all, we've got him above average to second base where we know he's well above average. And it wouldn't shock me if he was above average at shortstop either, quite frankly. Uh, not asking to do that at this time, just so we're clear. But uh, he's an amazing player. His his willingness, sometimes when we're up in the office, we can get a little too chess pieces on the chessboard. And, of course, these are humans, and they have to be comfortable doing it. And D. Gordon is awesome. He's such a team guy, uh, and he gets it. He, he understands that being versatile is being incredibly valuable uh, and and he's willing to do that for us, so it, it's, it's, it's awesome. Jesse, I know this time of year you're incredibly busy. We always appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Gary. Now time's for some fun. Aaron Goldsmith, myself, Mike Blowers. Mike, you have no idea what is about to hit you right now. This is going to be possibly one of our best-ever Sundays with Blow, and i got to say that's saying something. Are you ready for this? <laughs> I think, I'm not sure, but I think so. Let's try it. You know, Gary has uh, been doing, as you know, some – He's been filtering through some things in the booth since opening day, just kind of digging through, seeing what's around. Yep. we got some stuff that belongs in an archive. Like this, I have in front of me, Mike, the 1994 The Bill James Player Ratings Book, evaluations of more than 1,000 major leaguers and top minor league prospects. Wouldn't you know it? You flip to page 25, bottom right-hand corner. Yeah. Mike Blowers. Really? Now, uh, this is the Biggio Blowers page, which I think also adds to the, uh, <laughs> the beauty of this. <laughs> One a Hall of Famer, the other not. <laughs> okay. Um, boy, I don't even know where to start. I think I'll start by just reading what Bill James wrote about you prior really? to the 1994 season. 94, okay. So that's after 93, which was my first uh, full season in the big leagues. Okay, I would be curious to see what Bill has to say. This is tremendous. In his first shot, by the way, before I even read it, I feel like Bill does what I do to you all the time. Right. Build me up and then tear you down. Tear me down. He yeah. kind of did it in. He kind of did it in reverse order. Okay. Right, which I don't. I, I go the other way. But here we go. In his first shot at a regular job, he didn't play as well as he was capable of playing. That's hmm. a bummer. Edgar Martinez's injury last year gave him a second chance, and this time he played, in my opinion, a little better in italics than we should expect him to play in the future. Okay. Now, this Gary and I thought was a typo until Gary looked it up. He murdered left-handers most foully. Now, murdered, apparently in uh, Gary in Old English, is basically a synonym of murdering. That's right. That's right. 
So, so you murdered lefties. Uh, most, well, most as, foul. As Bill would rather say, you murdered left-handers most foully. So could be a strong platoon player, ellipses, AL leader in slugging percentage against lefties. Number one, Mike Blowers, 669. Number two, another Hoffer, the big hurt, Frank Thomas, 649. That's a 20-point swing blow, period. That's it. I think that is tremendous. <laughs> I would say it's probably right on the money. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, I, would, I would say this, though. I, I, I think the following year, I hit 280 in 93. That year in 94, I think I hit close to 290 in that range. And then in 95, I would say, even though my average dipped, it was my best year with the 23 home runs and 96 RBIs. So then I had a knee injury, and, you know, then we're back to hitting left-handers again, so. Bill, I think Bill and I can agree to disagree for a couple of years. Gary, <laughs> <laughs> do you think you and I could both successfully incorporate murdered into the broadcast? Yes, yes that's got to happen. That uh, has I, got to at happen. At this point, at this point, Aaron, I would expect that to happen sometime over the weekend <laughs> on, now, on TV. Now, if here's the thing, though, if we both say murdered, how many people are gonna get on stinking Twitter and say, uh, "Excuse me, uh, at Gary Hill Jr. Uh, at Hey Goldie." It's murdered, ever spoken before, and then can we just uh, immediately send them the link to uh, Merriam-Webster.com? <laughs> yeah, we'll just send the link. I mean, actually, I've been looking to incorporate more old English into my broadcast <laughs> as it is, so this is a perfect entry point for me. This is great. I'm yeah. really excited about murdered. So, so what brought all of this on? By the way, I'm just well, curious. I was going to ask Gary because I'm 94 Bill James book. First, let me say we've been sitting on this for a while now. Yeah, I'm actually have. impressed that we took really this yeah. long, roughly, uh, you know, mid-May. To bring this into the magazine because well, we've been on. This I had for a no while. idea that my slugging that year. I mean, I knew I hit left-handers well, but Bro. I didn't know it was there. Yeah, hey, Frank Thomas. Yeah, man. sorry about it, Frank. This is Blower Power time. Well, how did you find this, Gary? Well, as you two know, uh, going through the booth, looking at different items. Some have been around here for a little a long while. time. Yeah, since 1994. Yeah, <laughs> like this book. And there was also the 95, 96. There were a few editions that I found and. You know, I thought while I was cleaning through stuff, I looked at the, oh, Bill James, this is cool. Oh, Mike Blowers, there it is. <laughs> there it is. And that one, that was a keeper. I mean, that, that book, we're keeping that book because of that. I think we need to have Mike autograph this. I think probably should be framed. Yeah, it makes me wonder, um, just hearing that, though, um, going back or going ahead to 97 mm -hmm. um, after my knee injury. It was one of the things that um, Lou fought for was for me to come into camp, even though I had that brace on and I wasn't real mobile at the time, um, to do just that, just to play against left-handers. And I knew that I hit lefties well, but I wonder, I wonder how deep into the numbers he was aware or did he just feel, you know what, I've seen Mike hit left-handers, I'm comfortable with him doing that. Or did he know the numbers? Because I didn't. Really? No. But you but always you had a feel, knew, though. You always knew you hit lefties. Yeah, well. I knew I hit. Yes, I knew yeah. I hit lefties. Yeah, I was very comfortable against left-handers. So, um, and and that's any of them. So, to me, you know, that was something that I was never concerned with, and I knew that there was um, a plus and a, and a and a and a place for me because of that. That, yeah. there, that as long as I wanted to play or was capable of playing. Is it tougher or harder? Because you think about it, I and mean, you're an everyday guy facing, like let's take Kyle Seager for example. Right? Doesn't matter who's on the mound. Kyle's out there every day. So he gets in the rhythm, but there's obviously a wear and tear that's involved with playing every single day over the course of the season. Yeah. When you are a guy who, let's say, you're out there just to murder left-handers, mm -hmm. you get nice. You get thank you. You get. I'm practicing incorporating mm -hmm. it. 
you get more of a break, but you do not get the benefit of being in rhythm as much. What's the pros and the cons there? I think that I, I learned something early on in my career from Don Mattingly, who talked about when he started to struggle against right-handers. Donnie, obviously, a great left-handed hitter. And he said that when that happened, he would hope to face a left-hander, especially a left-hander that had a good breaking ball. And the reason why, he said, because to hit that guy, he had to keep his front shoulder in longer. His, his, his hips couldn't fly early, and he concentrated on that to hit the ball the other way, which would make him right and better against all the right-handers concerned because they typically would try to pitch him away. Uh, and when I had that conversation with him, it's something that I thought about a lot through my playing career, which I think is true. So to answer your question, yes, you're, 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 you're well-rested, and I always thought, thought it was an advantage to see um, a left-hander two days in a row. I mean, and not the same lefty, obviously, but just because I felt like my timing would be better on that because I wasn't in there against righties um, some of those years. But the years that I was playing more often against righties and lefties, I felt that the day that I was going to get a left-hander, I'm getting two hits today no matter what. That's going to happen just because it was just so much easier than facing all these righties all the time. Um, so it made things easier, and I felt mechanically I was in better shape because of it. So there's a, there's a plus and a minus to both. Gary, uh, kudos to you, my friend. Yeah. This was very exciting. I mean, first we thank Bill James, but then we find you for finding. Thank you for finding this uh, buried in the in the hollows, the bowels of the booth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometime we'll have a segment on some of the other things I found <laughs> while going through the booth, but I don't think we have time for that right now. Can I have that page? I might have to frame yes, that. Yes, you can have that. Absolutely, that's your page. Okay. Cool. We'll autograph it for you. I mean, I would appreciate that. <laughs> And we'll take a highlighter to murder. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> as always, thanks for the All time. All right, man. thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And finally, Riz remembers. For the Seattle Mariners, it took 13 years before a Mariner pitcher threw a no-hitter. Back in 1990, Randy Johnson threw a no-hitter against the Detroit Tigers. 137 pitches. He walked six along the way, but he didn't give up a base hit. And then three years later, along came a veteran pitcher by the name of Chris Basio, who fashioned the second no-hitter in the history of the franchise. Basio was a tough right-hander. He gave you everything he possibly had each and every night. And early of 1993 of that season, he really had one heck of a ball game against the Boston Red Sox at the Kingdom. A no-hitter against the hard-hitting Red Sox. It was the second no-hitter in the history of the franchise. Basio was going on three days rest. Eric Hansen was scheduled to get a start, but for some reason, Lou Pinella said, hey, can you go tonight against the Red Sox? Chris Basio was very, very sick. He came down with the flu right before that start, couldn't keep anything down. He still had problems while he was warming up before the ball game at the Kingdom. But sure enough, he was able to take the mound. He walked the first two batters in that ball game, but he settled down. Inning after inning after inning, no hits, no hits, no hits for the Boston Red Sox. And then in the top of the ninth inning with two outs, Chris Basio was taking a look at Ernie Riles. Ernie Riles stood between Chris Basio and the Mariners' second no-hitter in history. Basio. His 2-1 pitch on the way. Swung on, high jumper with the mound. Charged by Vizquel. Barrett throws, it's over! And Bozio has done it! My, oh my! What a performance by Chris Bozio! The second no-hitter in Mariner history. And he is being mobbed by his teammates out behind the mound. Great defense, great pitching, and these fans indeed have had a chair on baseball history here at the Kingdome tonight.
to see one of the more brilliant performances in history as Basio faces only one over the minimum and no hits. The Boston Red Sox beats them by a score of seven to nothing. You will never see a better pitched game. Congratulations to Chris Basio being embraced by all of his teammates, and he did it in only 95 pitches. Indeed, my Omar. Really, the play that stands out for everybody is one that Omar made. I was shocked because from I had the best angle in the house being at third and watching him go across the diamond. I knew he had time to use his glove. Boz, I think, thought it was going to be a base hit because he immediately dropped his head when it bounced over his head. And seeing Omar, I thought for sure he was going to glove it no, with everything that was on the line, but, but not, not Omar. You know, he, he bare hands it and fires and, and gets the final out of the game. And it was great. You know, Boz, to me, was, was an awesome teammate. It was it was a lot of fun, and I just I I was so happy for Boz to have a guy like that come across the infield, and you go, wow, in a situation like that, to barehand the ball to get the final out of a no hitter, but he had that tremendous confidence. He didn't need a glove. I remember Omar telling me that uh, you know when he was growing up in the sandlots or the streets or wherever in Venezuela that they would take a milk carton, flatten it out, and fold it up, and that would be in the fashion of a baseball glove. And that's how they caught baseballs or whatever they used to play baseball when they were kids. So here's a guy on a major league diamond, you know, who had a glove on his left hand, but he decided to barehand the ball with his right hand, cutting across between the mound and the second base bag to throw Ernie Riles out at first base for Basio's uh, final out of the no-hitter was absolutely amazing. It was kind of shocking, but then you went, that's Omar Vizquel. He could do this. Chris Basio went on to win 27 games for the Mariners in his four years with the club and was an integral part of the 95 club. He served as coach in the Mariners minor league system for a while, but will always be remembered for his no-hitter in 1993.